every company that you build, you have to have an exit strategy. This is entrepreneurship. It's not a game for the weak. Now I think about a, a company as a transaction. It's not my identity. It's just a numbers game. Some will, some won't. So what? Who's next? Why don't you tell us who you are and, and what you do and how you got there? Well, Austin, thanks for having me on. My name is Bill Lyons. I own three companies inside the real estate industry. One of them is Griffin Funding. We do mortgage lending in four states. Another one is called Lions Realty, which is a boutique real estate company here in San Diego. And then I also have a technology platform called Revestor, where we help investors find Airbnb and long-term rentals and all that good stuff here locally in San Diego. And I'm also on the board of a fintech startup called Approved, which is a digital mortgage platform. It's kind of like a rocket mortgage. So I got a lot going on. And I, I started as an entrepreneur in high school, actually. So what did you do in high school to get started off your story there? You know, it was actually network marketing, an MLM. And, you know, I don't recommend MLMs or network marketing. I would never do one myself or recommend them to anyone. But as a young person, I think it's a great idea for less than 500 bucks to learn how to sell, learn how to build teams and learn from, from some people that are doing successful. So it was good at the time for me in high school going into, into college. It helped me, you know, pay for college, which was pretty cool. But that was my first experience as an entrepreneur. And for those of us who are listening and don't know what MLM, can you explain that? So it's multi-level marketing. So the most famous company that was in multi-level marketing is Amway, right? And then now you have send out cards, you have different juice things that everybody tries to sell on Instagram, et cetera. But it's a good a free education to learn how to, to sell because I didn't know how to sell when I first got started. And to be a good CEO and to be a good entrepreneur, you need to know how to sell. Should you make a career out of MLM and network marketing? Uh, maybe it's for some people, but you know, not for me uh, to make a career out of it. And so cutting you off. So you're taking your story from high school to college and entrepreneurship. So how do you grow from there? Um, you know, the MLM was in the telecom business. So rates went from 40 cents a minute for long distance phone calls down to three cents. So the margins disappeared overnight. So I had to find something else to do. And so I read Robert Kiyosaki's Cash Flow Quadrant, a Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I uh, listened to the Carlton Sheets CDs. And I thought I was a real estate flipping expert, investing expert. <laughs> And little did I know I was not. You can't just read two books and think you know what you're doing or go to, you know, a guru seminar and know what you're doing. I was clueless. So I bought a house in Scottsdale. I went to ASU for school and I couldn't rent it. I couldn't wrap it. I couldn't flip it. Uh, you know, I was just making a $1,700 a month payment. Wasn't able to even do that. So I finally got out of that mess and that got me into the mortgage business because I said, well, gee, all these people that sold me this house are all about a commission. They're not actually advising the client and I can advise the client and add value. So I'm going to get in this business. So that's how I first started in the mortgage business in, in Arizona. And was that straight residential? And what did you learn while you were there? Yeah, it was all residential. I learned from one of the top loan officers in the country. He can pass off the baton and he wanted me to help him build a team. 
And that's what I did. I built a team and then I moved back to San Diego, where I'm from. I started a branch under a bank here, learned the ropes, and then I went off and started my own company in 2003. And that was my my first real company that I owned. And what did you learn from that mortgage broker that you're shadowing or your mentor? <laughs> How to sell. I mean, he was great salesman, tonality. I learned tonality. I learned how to sell. You know, it was great because I had never done sales before. And I think that everybody doesn't see themselves as a salesperson. But if you can communicate with the public at large, no matter what business you're in as an entrepreneur, you know, that's key because you got to be a good communicator, a good leader as an entrepreneur. So let's take it to 2003. You're saying you set up your first company. Set it up. Yeah, took it to $20 million inside of 36 months. So we grew like crazy. We went from zero to 5 million, 5 million to 10 million, 10 million to 20 million. And then, of course, the real estate crash happened. You know, originally it was called the credit crunch at the time. And then, of course, it later went into a full blown great recession. But I was 26, 27, 28, 29 during that time, multi millionaire. And then by the time I was 30, lost it all. So that was not fun. And um, was that doing straight mortgages or, or what would you do there? We did mortgages. We also had a financial services division that, where we did uh, insurance. And then we also had a real estate division as well uh, that we did. So there was multiple companies under that $20 million, but most of it was mortgage at the time until the rug got pulled out underneath the whole industry. Could you tell us how, how you're able to grow a team? Because is that the first time you were leading a team and the things that you learned while you're building that first business? Yeah. So I grew it to almost 300 employees in 38 states. So it was crazy. You know, and at 23 or 24, you know, I went to work for a mortgage company here locally. I mentioned I was just the branch manager, but it was a company that was very corporate with a lot of bureaucracy and policies. And it taught me what to do and what not to do. So I recommend anybody who's out of school, as much as you don't want to, go get your MBA by working for a corporate giant, because then you can learn policies, procedures, what big companies do that small companies should do or shouldn't do. I mean, it was an MBA experience for me. The year, year and a half, two years I was there, I was able to learn what not to do and what to do when I decided to start my own company. And I built it to over 300 people in 38 states. And to be the leader that I wanted to be, I obviously learned that from working in, in corporate America. But I read three books. I read uh, Straight from the Gut by Jack Welch, learned about how he ran GE as a CEO and how I could run a small company the same way and take some things from that. 48 Laws of Power and then Good to Great were the three books that launched my first company and, and helped to take me to being a great CEO during the time there. So well, you were saying that you also learned what not to do. Do you have any like specific examples of what you learned? Oh, I mean, just to not have a bad culture, to not make it where, you know, there's people in the organization that don't want to sabotage you or want to see you fail or create bureaucracy or too many systems in place where the right hand's not talking to the left hand too many forms to fill out, too much red tape. Those are the things that you know you want to avoid when people are in the organization actually not trying to close sales. They're actually trying to do the opposite. Believe it or not, there's a lot of companies like that. 
And I guess you're saying, when was the writing on the wall on that company when you said everything crashed? When did you start realizing that was going to go happening? And can you give us just more details on that experience? My company or the company I left? Uh, the, the one that you created, the first one you created. Oh, it went to 20 million. I had no clue. I mean, it was overnight. It literally was overnight where all the banks and all the lenders went bankrupt and shut down in August of 2007. So there was no warning. You know, I just thought it was a credit crunch as well. So I poured all my assets back into the company into a black hole, which was a huge mistake. Over $1.5 million went back into a black hole. So tried to keep it going, but obviously it was just the black hole. So ultimately I had to, you know, move on and start over. Right. And did you have to declare bankruptcy at that point? I, I did. I did. I had to declare personal bankruptcy because I started the company so when I was so young, I had to do personal guarantees on all the leases for, you know, forty thousand plus square feet of, of office space, et cetera. So and of course we live in California, where everybody wants to sue everybody. It's not like Texas, where if you sue some somebody for a wrongful suit, they shoot you in the backyard. You know, in California, anybody can sue anybody for any reason, which is just horrible. And did you have family? I mean, did you have children, married, kids? No, just a girlfriend who who stuck with me during the time, that whole time, which now we are married, which is a she's incredible. She's amazing. Two puggles, two little dogs to keep me uh, sane during that time, but but no kids, luckily, because I wouldn't have wanted them to, to go through that crazy crash. So you may have heard that there are other entrepreneur groups out there that can help you feel a little less lonely. Ones like EO, Vistage, or YPO. But why join any of those when you can get all those benefits at a fraction of the price? How? Well, join our Patreon membership. You've heard from some of our members how much of a steal our Patreon membership is. So here's some cold hard numbers for you. In year one with EO, you're going to spend 4,900 bucks. For Vistage, you're paying $18,810 for your first year. And for YPO, you're shoveling out $7,050 for your very first year. For our gold Patreon membership, you're getting it at less than 30 bucks a month. Let that sink in. Again, our gold membership is less than 30 bucks a month compared to those other guys that cost 4,900 bucks, $18,810, and $7,050. So if you're on the fence, join today before I act like a smart businessman and I raise prices. Just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. Well, for those of us who haven't been in bankruptcy, I mean, could you talk about the stress level or, you know, because I don't want to just brush it over. I mean, I mean, I just imagine that has to be it's hard if you're at 20 million, in one, you know, one month and then what, six months later, you're declaring bankruptcy? Well, I waited. I waited. I waited three years because I tried to fight my way out of it because I thought at the time bankruptcy was an immoral thing to do. And the right thing to do would be to, you know, pay everything back and get out of it. Then I finally realized the stress I was putting on my family and the stress I was putting on myself for taking responsibility for everything. 
And it wasn't all my fault. Sure, I made mistakes. Sure, I took responsibility. But it wasn't fair that I had 14 managers making decisions. You know, even the greatest companies in the world in the mortgage business uh, with the greatest CEOs in the world went out of business. So, you know, I finally threw in the towel saying, you know what, if I'm going to start over, I need to start over. I need a clean slate and everybody in America deserves a clean slate to start over. That's what happened. I mean, you see some of the most famous people that have gone bankrupt. Ted Turner has gone a bunch of times. Our president has gone a bunch of times. So it's a horrible, horrible experience that I don't wish on anybody, but it could happen to anybody as an entrepreneur. As an entrepreneur, I talked about this on another podcast. We're all one, two, three chess moves away from losing it all. And there's two types of people that walk down the street. One that is confident still, but knows that that he could get hit by a bus at any, any given second. And the other guy who it just simply hasn't happened to, and he's overly confident, narcissist type entrepreneur, it's just a matter of time before it happens to him. This is entrepreneurship. It's not a game for the weak. And I mean, at this time, like, were you living in a house and had to downgrade to an apartment or like, could you tell us the lifestyle change that you had to go through at that point? <laughs> oh, man. So, you know, I had a, a Ferrari. I had a limo. I had a penthouse. I had four or five investment properties. I had $1.5 in cash in the bank. Yeah, I was a multimillionaire at the time. I was paying myself a salary of $100,000 a month. You know, and so you have people go, oh, my gosh, he overspent. Well, think about it. It's all relative, right? Always. I didn't go bankrupt because I overspent. You know, let's just say that a listener is making, you know, $10,000 a month. Out of that $10,000 a month is $1,000 a month of it wasted. You know, are you going to games, entertainment? Are you driving a car you shouldn't be driving? Or whatever the case may be. Everybody wastes, if they make 10 grand, everybody wastes 10% of their money. I hope you don't, but that's the reality. And you try to save 20%. You waste 10% because we got to live life still. And the rest is, is gravy, right? So yeah, I mean, I had about $10,000 a month of toys, but all being all relative, if you make a thousand or you know, $10,000 a month, it's a thousand dollars a month. You make a hundred thousand dollars a month. It's 10,000 a month. You know, so, so you can't just save, save, save everything and, and do nothing and be bored and, like Jack Welch talks about in that book, you know, celebrating along the way, celebrating your victories along the way. I mean, even in, let's say you did save it all. I mean, you threw your extra money into the company anyways, right? So it's not like, I mean, I, I just could imagine that even if you'd saved 90% of it, right? Or 95% of it on the type of money that you were making, you might have thrown it all in the company and lost it again anyhow, right? Other than, I guess, the 1.5 million. Yeah, I was too emotional, right? It was my baby. It was my first company. It was my identity. It was something that I was going to pass on to my kids one day. Now, I don't think about like that now. I think about a, a company as a transaction. It's not my identity. And every company that you build, you have to have an exit strategy. You buy real estate, you have to have an exit strategy. You know, what is your exit strategy? Are you going to sell it? Are you going to have investors come in and be a capital partner? You know, what is your exit? Because you can't take on all that risk yourself. And there's got to be a time when you can get out and move on to the next level. It's not, not fair 
for you to be burdened with that for the rest of your life. So, you know, I, I love, there's a new podcast coming out called Exits and Acquisitions, which, you know, love learning about all that stuff. So. All right. Well, let's go ahead and transition um, from, I guess, that down point to your next company. And what are the company's names? Like the first one that went, that you went bankrupt with and then the next one that you created just so we keep them in order. Oh, uh, that company was LEI and, uh, it stood for Lions Enterprises Inc. And, and of course I, I had to put my name in the company name because I had a, you know, an ego, right? <laughs> yeah. But I would never put a, my name in a company name because it's not about ego. It's about selling the company and you're not going to sell a company with your name in it. So. I do still have my real estate company that is my name in it, but that's just been around so long. I can't change it at this point. So, well, um, well, yeah, well, let's talk about starting the next company. I mean, did you get a job before starting another company or where, where'd you go from there? Yeah. I, uh, you know, obviously for, from the losses, I had tax refunds to live off of lots of tax refunds. So that, that was good. I decided at one point it was better for me to take a sabbatical than do anything. The more I did, the more I lost. So I figured, look, I need a complete cleanse and a complete reset before I start anything new. I need to get rid of my baggage and, and start with a clean slate with something new. So I waited. I waited a long, long time. In 2011, I started Revestor, which is the, the real estate technology platform. It's like a Zillow for real estate investors that finds properties by cap rate and cash flow. And that was a startup. We had a couple small investors that put in, you know, 10 grand, 20 grand, 50 grand, but never raised a uh, big capital on it. I self-funded everything by doing uh, mortgages again on the side. And so in 2011, 2012, I started doing mortgages on the side. Just myself, I felt that I wasn't in a position yet to hire anybody that if I was going to create a company or a system that it better work for me first before I hire anyone else. And when you're doing that on the side, I mean, I, were you going back to old clients you had before? Could you discuss that process? No, I just was banging the phones. I was, I was calling leads. I was doing SEO. I was doing internet marketing to, to generate leads for myself. I would personally call those people. And sell them because I wanted to know that I could still sell because I hadn't sold anything in five plus years. And I wanted to create the sales pitch. I wanted to create the process from A to Z before I hired one single person. I think that that's a big mistake that a lot of people do is, you know, they go to start a company and they want to hire 10 people to do all the work. And they just want to sit behind the computer and press a couple buttons and manage some people. You know, that's why I think it's so important if you're starting a technology company that you got to be a coder. If you're one of the founders or one of the founders needs to be a coder, you can't just start it and, and hire 10 people and just press the buttons and hope it all works out. You got to dive in and get on the, the front lines and roll your sleeves up to your neck. Were you able to find someone to do that with you for, I guess, for Revestor? Yeah, yeah. I, I was able to hire a guy that a friend of mine met in Santa Barbara uh, State, uh, UC Santa Barbara, became good friends with him. We call him the crazy Russian. He was able to come aboard as my partner and code all of Revestor. And then we were able to get hooked up with some designers to do the front end design as well. 
And then we created the algorithm out of that. We filed our patent out of that. And we were off to the races. Talked, I guess, about approved earlier today. I mean, earlier in the interview, what do you spend most of your time on as far as company-wise? Because you, you still have a Revestor and you have approved. They're two different websites. So approved isn't mine. I'm just an advisor to approved. The CEO of approved used to be head of product for Redfin doing their IPO now, which, which is awesome. I'm, I'm super pumped for them and congratulate them for that. That's, that's really What's Redfin? Uh, Redfin is not like Zillow. Zillow is a marketplace. Redfin is actually a real estate technology company with agents on the ground. So they're in like 80, 90 markets. They probably have the best, arguably, uh, user interface out of any company. They're raising a hundred million with their IPO and they're going to be doing some really cool things. I'm excited about the Redfin Now product that they're coming out with. But Andy left there, became an entrepreneur in residence at Social Capital, learned the VC side of the game, and then decided, hey, I can do this. I can create a great product, you know, coming from the real estate technology side. On the fintech side, I can create a great product. And with my background in mortgages, you know, it was a natural fit for Andy to have me on his advisory board. And, and he's got a great group of, of advisors. And, and uh, we're, of course, a customer. Of course, we use it. And of course, you know, Andy and I meet once a month about how he, he can improve the product and really scale as a fully digitalized mortgage form from A to Z to, to go up against uh, Rocket Mortgage. With Revestor, they said, so is that the most of your time spent today on the company? You know, I think my biggest challenge today is to synergistically get all of the companies working together. So I probably spend 80% of my day on Griffin Funding, which is the mortgage banking company, which, which we lend in four states. So that's about 80% of my time. And then probably 15% of my time is, is Revestor and probably 5% of my time is, is Lions Realty. But the challenge is to get them all to work together. Right. Well, if you spend 80% of your time in Griffin funding, why don't we go ahead and talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah. So like I said, I, I just started doing my own personal uh, loans. And then in 2013, I, I said, you know, I can see where being a mortgage broker is sustainable again, that it's a, a real business again, because from 2007 through 2011, there was no such thing as a mortgage broker. They pretty much went extinct. And so, you know, there wasn't a viable business model to actually grow it out. And in 2012, I saw an opportunity to do that. So we started as a broker, self-funded with my own personal production. And we built that up to, in 2014, to 500,000. In 2015, we built it to 1.7 million. And in 2016, we built it to 5.2, 5.1 million, something like that. So last year, we grew 220%. And over 36 months, we grew, I think, over 1,100%. So it's an exciting ride. And, and it's all about the people and the team that you build. Otherwise, we couldn't have done that growth. I mean, so you've done this twice. Could you give us some, and like I said, I'd like to hone in more detail because as far as hiring, making that hire, hiring salespeople where you're the first person, who was your next person on Griffin Funding? You know, I try to outsource everything, try to keep it bootstrapped. You know, you don't need an in-house coder for a mortgage company. I hired a sales guy who used to be in the restaurant business because A, he could deal with the public at large and he was an expert communicator. 
And 95% of it is character. And the other 5% of the mechanics I can teach. I didn't want to hire a loan officer from 2007 with all this baggage and a false perception of what reality is. I wanted to hire somebody that was a good communicator that I could teach the business. And what I do is I put people through auditions. So I'll do a FaceTime interview. I'll stock their Facebook. I'll stock their LinkedIn. I'll do a Facebook FaceTime interview. And then after that, I'll invite them in. I'll meet with them for interview one. Then I'll allow them to shadow some of our senior people. And then after they're done shadowing, we put them on the phone. And we actually have them call real leads and see how they do. And it's an audition for them. And it's an audition for us because they know within two to four hours if they can do it and they see themselves doing it because certain positions aren't for everybody. It's not for everybody. And instead of two weeks later finding out that they're not a good fit and they're not going to fit within the company, we find out within a few hours. And that's that's been really, really well. Of course, I do the reference checks. Of course, I do the background checks. Of course, I get to know them and get to know their personality. I got to love the person. I love every single person that I work with, and I love to see them grow, which is exciting. It gets me to the office every day. With my old company, I didn't even know half the people's names. I belong to this international organization, and you get once a month meeting, we all get together. And I've gotten frustrated because I go in there and everybody's just kind of scooting over the top of everything. And we're sitting there nodding our heads like we know what they're talking about. There's no details to it. For me, it's $700 a month. And it's hard to justify, you know. Uh, honestly, I feel like that I've got 10 times more out of listening to your meetings. <laughs> when those hires, those, those leads, are you giving them training on that? And could you tell us any tools or techniques that's worked for those hires? Yeah. So, you know, I've tried outsize, outside salespeople and, and that can work and, and not work where you, you hire a third party to come in and, and train your people. You know, we just train them and we try to compartmentalize the process, right? So if you're a sales guy, the first part of the process is your prospecting, right? Then your rapport building and then asking for the close. So you could be great at all three or you could be great at just one of those things. And so if they're only good at prospecting and getting to know people and building rapport, but they can't close the door to save their lives, then we hook them up with a senior who's going to go ahead and close the deal for them. You know, that's how we set up the process. And then training. Yeah, we do a, a sales meeting once a week. You know, we do sales training programs over a seven week period where we dig in deep to PowerPoints and slides. And, you know, we use a little bit of business mastery from Tony Robbins, sales mastery from Tony Robbins. We use a guy who came in and, and taught us a lot of different things, Mike Struzak. So we kind of just blend all these takeaways from all these different sales trainers and put them together to make these guys the most successful to create the highest conversions. And it's about managing the conversions and the metrics because, you know, Famous quote, of course, what, what you don't measure, what doesn't get managed, doesn't get measured, whatever the same is. You have to measure everything if you're going to optimize and maximize your business. And even though it could take four hours on a Saturday to 
you know, optimize and maximize those numbers and really dig into those numbers and keep people accountable to those numbers, it has to be done. So. And how do you do that? Do you use a certain type of software to measure those numbers? And because I find that that's a lot on the small and medium business, it seems like that's the hardest part is recording those numbers and then actually looking at them. <laughs> well, I think any business, you've got to have a good CRM, right? We have a CRM that we could probably be, be on Salesforce, right? But we have a CRM that is mortgage specific. It's called Velocify and it does texting through the CRM. It does voicemail drop off through the CRM. It does email drips through the CRM. It does a, a power dial through the CRM and we can track those, the, how many texts were sent, how many voicemails were left. You know, how many calls were made, what the duration of the calls was. So we just export that report into a Google sheet called sales optimization. And everybody sees, you know, where they are and where they're falling off. So we look at number of calls. We look at duration. Okay. Great. That's good. You know, you're at 50 calls a day plus you're doing okay. 100 calls a day plus you're doing outstanding. Okay, you're keeping people on the phone in terms of duration. So you're good at building rapport and getting past that first 10 seconds of, of a block wall. I'm going to hang up on you. I can easily get through that. You're having some meaningful conversations. So what we track there is every conversation that's above 60 seconds counts as a meaningful conversation. And then we look at the next metrics, which is pitched. So did they send them a quote and pitch them? And so our percentage from meaningful conversations to pitched is 5%. How can we move that to 5.5 or 6% and optimize all the numbers where exponentially grows at the bottom? And then how many applications did they take? And then how many of those applications actually close? So that's what we track A to Z. And I'll tell you, if, if I don't do it every single week, but the weeks that I don't do it, our production goes way down. No one's accountable. No one's looking at the numbers. We also have a leaderboard in the conference room that shows a graph of everybody's contacts for the day. So this doesn't matter if you're calling on realtors for Revestor. It doesn't matter if you're calling on mortgages. It doesn't matter if you're selling software. you got to track this. And there's tons of CRMs out there that can go through number of dials, duration, meaningful conversations, pitches, applications, closes, because you need to track that. Say I'm like a new mortgage broker that you hired me on. You do give them leads and it's because it seems to me that might be the most important or it seems like what I've found in the past is that those prospects coming in, making sure those are legit prospects. How do you find those for those new guys or do they have to go out and find them themselves? Yeah. So I think what makes us different is from other models out there is if you want to be a mortgage broker, loan officer, and get in the business, uh, you're going to go take your test. It's going to be the 20 hours online. Then you go take the test. Then you beg your mom, can I do your loan? You mess up your mom's loan. She hates you. Then your best friend's a realtor. You mess up his deal. His commission gets swiped from him. He hates you. And then a year and a half later, you're bringing donuts to a realtor office and you get your third deal and you actually make some money. So in our system, we buy them hot, fresh leads so they don't have to go out and market for deals and they can experience hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of leads their first month and really fall on their face and mess up and know that it's just a numbers game. Out of 10 people you talk to, I don't care if you're a yoga instructor, a barista at, at Starbucks, 
out of 10 people that come see you, two of them are rude, okay, and they're jerks. That's the kind of person these people are. Two of them are ecstatic and appreciated and want to give you a million dollars in thanks. And the other six are just not interested. They can care less. So you you have to, the fortunes and the follow-up with those six. But you got to know that the numbers are two people are going to be assholes. Excuse my language. Two people are going to be really nice and appreciative. And six people aren't going to do anything. It's just a numbers game. Some will, some won't. So what? Who's next? And with those leads, I mean, are y'all buying those from somebody else or are you, do you have an in-house system to try to find those prospects? So, yeah. So we have a combination of where we purchase the leads from lead providers. We also organically generate leads through our own retargeting efforts and then our own software sniper farming that we have. So it's a number of different ways that we generate the leads for them. But the key is to have the leads flow and we spend a lot of money on those leads. Can we get an idea of like how much you'd be paying to try to find prospects for the guys that you're training on? Yeah. So we spend between 50 and 75,000 a month on leads. As far as, like I said, what would a new salesman say you hire them on and a year from now, if they're decent, what would average pay be for something like that? 250. They make 250,000 with us. Through this process, as you grow in a second company from beginning to end where it is today, what do you think has been the biggest struggle for you? Gosh, it was nice to be able to do it three times in my life. So you couldn't say that I was the one hit wonder, but um, it's challenging in San Diego. There's tough people to hire. You know, they don't have a Midwest or an East Coast mentality. There's a lot of distractions. So it's tough to find really, really good people. And I'm really, really picky. So that's been tough to build our team with the right people. But we do have the right people. Just we need more of the right people. And it's tough. You know, and in California, your state taxes are over 14%. So it makes it difficult to operate. You know, those are our main challenges there. And how big is your team at Masterson Company? Under 30 in Griffin funding. All the companies combined, it's under 35. And how have you stayed doing this a second or third time building a company from beginning to end? What's been your biggest advice for people who are listening and how you've been able to do it? People say, oh, Bill Gates didn't finish school, so you shouldn't finish school. Finish school, man. I didn't finish school. I've got a few units left. Maybe I'll go back one day, but I literally left as an entrepreneur because I was working too many crazy hours to be able to finish. But guess what? You know, Bill Gates is a one in a trillion chance that that's going to happen to you. You know, Steve Jobs, it's a one in a trillion chance. There's not millions of Steve Jobs out there. So you can't quit school, right? Second thing is, is don't be a $30,000 a year millionaire. It's tough. I know it is to keep up with the Joneses. We all get stuck in that trap. I do not keep up with the Joneses. I drive a Toyota truck. I go to A to B. Who cares? I'd rather have 300000 bucks in the bank. So don't be a $30,000 a year millionaire. I remember in Scottsdale, going to the clubs in Scottsdale, and there was this club called Axis Radius and all the hot girls, you know, you call it Saline Valley in, in Scottsdale, right? Because everybody's got some some nice boobs out there. And all the hot women would be up on the second floor balcony looking down at all the dudes coming up in their brand new BMW that mommy bought them. And you're sitting there going, what's wrong with me? You know, I'm making $30,000 a year, but who cares? I'll go get that BMW for the $1,200 a month payment so I can be as cool as that guy. Don't compare yourself to that guy. Because as soon as you compare yourself to that guy, you are that guy. Uh, don't compare yourself to anyone because you are your own unique self 
who can create your own destiny and be the architect of your own future. And I promise you, if you stay disciplined and don't get sucked into that crap, that fakeness, keeping up with the Joneses, you'll get a girl 10 times hotter eventually, but it's going to make you mad. It's going to make you jealous. It's going to depress you, but let those emotions pass and let it inspire you that you're going to go much more beyond any $30,000 a year millionaire would where you spend 1200 bucks of your whole entire paycheck trying to make the payment. And then there's no way you're going to start a business if that's your mentality. Saying you spend like about 80% of your time on the Griffin funding, but what is the day to day like for you? I mean, do you have a certain type of schedule that you stick to make sure you stay focused? Yeah. You know, I usually, I love eight hours of sleep. I used to be a four to six hour guy. So I get eight hours no matter what. I usually wake up around seven. I do my bulletproof coffee, jump on my rebounder for a little bit. Then I'll maybe go listen to a podcast and, and walk around downtown for a little bit. And then I'll go hammer out and try to get to a zero inbox before I get to the office. Because if I've got a huge inbox during the time I'm in my office, you know, it's about everybody else's agenda is not mine. So I don't have an office at the office. You know, I work out of the conference room part of the time. I work out on the sales floor on a stand-up desk. So I'm in the middle of the sales team helping there. And then I have a little desk I share sometimes with our compliance, accounting, funding, shipping ops team on the other office that we have. So I kind of just float around and make sure everything is optimized. That's really what my day consists of. I'm not much of a meeting guy or a lunch guy. You know, lunch is for wimps, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you gotcha. How was that transition going from kind of, you know, the head manager talking to everyone from one person when you started Griffin Funding? Because it seems like a lot of entrepreneurs, that kind of what slows them down from being the guy who does everything to eventually growing into a role where you give other people tasks to do. Yeah, you got to learn how to pass off the baton for sure. And you can't become an octopus. And last year, that's what I did. That was my biggest challenge is I became an octopus where everybody's coming to me. So that's why we're putting in the correct leadership and management team to be able to do that. Now, I don't want to grow to 300 people again. That was insane. I had 14 direct reports to me and then the 300 people below them. So not interested in doing that again. And even in that company, we were the most profitable when we had between 30 to 50 people. When we had 300 people, our profit margins dove. The culture dissipated. It doesn't stay. It's tough to keep a raving fan culture when you have 300 people. It, it's tough. So that's what I always watch is keep it between 20, 30, 40 people. The culture will stay there. People will be handpicked by me and we can do business at a very high profit margin because, you know, as a guy out of college or high school or whatever the case may be, we all have these egos of revenue, 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 20 million in revenue. Well, who cares if your net, net, net profit margin was 3%? That doesn't matter. You know, the old days, it was revenue at all costs. Be the biggest and the baddest and the best and become the largest mortgage and real estate conglomerate on the planet. That's what I used to say. And no, who is the most profitable? Adults think in profit. Teenagers think in revenue. And not I'll credit that to, to Chet Holmes and Tony Robbins for their business mastery course that they do. So I don't want to steal a quote there, but 
that's what you got to learn is you got to focus in on profit and it's not worth it for the risk if your target is any less than 20 to 30 percent. If you're trying to operate on a 10, 20 percent profit margin or a five or a 15 percent profit margin, it's not worth the risk. So make sure you know how to read financials. Make sure you know if you're profiting or not. Make sure that you know that where your cash flow is. Make sure you know your ideal client. Make sure you know where 80% of your profits come from. Which client did 80% of the profits come from? And then you pour everything into that client, that type of client. I like that quote about the profit because every time I've listened to a podcast in the past, they ask about revenue and I don't give a shit, honestly. You know, it, it really is about how much you can make it at the bottom line for yourself. So I think that was a good one. You mentioned Tony Robbins. I mean, what has helped you to grow the most? It sounds like you've taken a lot of different courses and read a lot of different books. Yeah. Yeah. I'm more of a podcast guy than books, but I do read still. I'd like to go to at least one seminar every six months to learn something new or different. But yeah, I've done the Firewalk. I've I've done done his business mastery program, which I think is the best one. And I've done Mastery University, which includes the Date with Destiny one, which was on the the I'm Not Your Guru on Netflix. And that's a tough one. That's a very very difficult one to do. So you got to be 110 percent committed if you're going to do that one. But yeah, get around, go to seminars like that, get around people, have the right peer group. You know, I'm in EO. Uh, entrepreneur organization. I'm also in YEC and I'm also on the Forbes Real Estate Council. So those are kind of my three peer groups that, that I'm a part of. Obviously, the Tony Robbins community I'm a part of, but just getting around those people. Actually, just today, before this podcast, we started a mortgage mastermind. So I went around to a couple of the competitors in the market here locally in San Diego and a couple in Orange County. And we're actually going to start a mortgage mastermind. And some people would say, well, that's crazy. You're going to give all your competitors your secrets. I don't think that way. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to give the secret, secret, secret sauce. But really, at the end of the day, is there any freaking secret sauce? No. I think collectively, we can all make each other more money by sharing and coming together as a team and and coming in each group with one or two nuggets that can help each other. And then everybody coming into the group with one or two pain points that we'd like the group to help solve for us. So that's kind of the constitution of the group that that we formed this morning, starting with four of us, and, and we're going to be growing it to mortgage CEOs to probably keep it to you know ten to twelve people. But stuff like that, you get around the right people. Were you part of those groups early on when you started your first business, and at what point did you start making that transition to find like-minded people? You know, I've always been a little bit introverted when it comes to networking groups. You know, I just wasn't into the whole pass your card around and the whole fake thing. So I didn't join until I could find a really good quality group. But hey, you know, start up with meetups, you know, start up with closed Facebook groups because you can get the same value with closed Facebook groups too. There's there's a lot of good ones out there that you can join and be part of. I don't have a scalable internet business. So your podcast, your guest that you interview resonates a lot more. Uh, you know, you interview them very well and uh, you're quite consistent. So you know, I, when I'm going for a drive, that's what I listen to. Well, yeah, like I said, I appreciate it. So you're in Dubai? Yeah, so it's the capital of the UAE. 
he actually was in the Middle East. Oh, wow. You know, I don't know if he invests at all, but at least he can definitely point you in the right way and understand the stuff that you have to deal with. Yeah, oh, that'd be awesome. Okay, yeah, I'll reach out to him. So I helped, finally. No, no, just talking to you has uh, helped, uh, helped get my thinking going. Because what I've found is that it's pretty normal for an entrepreneur to kind of feel lonely at the top. And I've started doing those type of groups. And I mean, I'm just on the beginning of it. And I've already found out that it, that it's helped a lot. And just being able to talk to those people who own their own businesses. I mean, like I said, I knew it took you a while. But when did you actually find that first group to help you out? The first, I was so skeptical for my first Tony Robbins seminar I went to. I think it was in March of 2003, maybe in Long Beach. It was the UPW seminar, the, the firewalking seminar. And look, with any seminar, you're going to have half the people there that are in it for Tony, Tony, Tony. Oh my gosh, this is so great. I'm it. Well, great. You just spent your credit card to get here. What are you going to do? And then you've got in the front row, which I pay extra for the front rows. You've got a guy next to you with a $50,000 Rolex on who just flew in on his private jet, who just made $50 million in net profit last year. And you're sitting next to those guys. And so I was able to, you know, develop a lot of friendships that way. But, you know, until recently, until a year, year and a half ago, I looked at myself and saying, wow, I, I need a better peer group. I'm not saying I don't have good friends. I have amazing friends, but I need a better peer group, like you were saying, for business with entrepreneurs that really understand who you are and what you go through. Because, you know, we use the example in EO, I think there's over 10, 15,000 members nationwide. Everybody's got to prove that they're doing a million dollars plus in revenue. It should be profit, like we just said. Because <laughs> right. there's probably a couple people in the group that do a million in revenue, but only make 30 grand for themselves. But I haven't met a douchey person yet in EO. So that's good. So I'm knocking on wood right now. But, you know, and then we have 150 or so in San Diego. Then you break off into these individual forums. And you meet with your forum, you know, once a month, usually eight to 10 people. There's other groups out there like Vistage. There's another one called Gen Next. There's a lot of different groups out there. It just really depends exactly what you're looking for and if, if it'll be a fit for you. But the point of the story is, is you could be sitting next to a guy who is making love with his wife 10 times a day, who just made $20 million in net, net, net profit last year and has a six pack and is traveling the world. And then you're sitting next to him going, what's wrong with me? <laughs> you're talking about yourself right there, weren't you? <laughs> no, I wasn't. And then the very next year, you could be switching spots with that guy. And he can now be in your chair. So that's a scary thing about entrepreneurship and um, going into it. Don't get overconfident. Be confident because that's the number one most important thing in entrepreneurship, in my opinion, is confidence. But don't be overconfident. Don't let your ego tell you that you're cooler than you are. Don't believe that you know everything because as soon as you think you know everything, you know nothing. I love that saying. I mean, it's tough. I think that's some great last words right there on the confidence. As we close it down, I don't know if there's any other words of wisdom you want to leave us with. And uh, could you also let us know the best way to contact you if someone wanted to say thank you for doing the podcast? Yeah, absolutely. You know, what we do is our niche in the mortgage lending space is, is VA loans and also investment properties. So when people go to Revestor, they find a property. We help represent them with the Lions Realty side. And then we help finance the Airbnb investment 
through Griffin funding. So that's how we have everything work together. And we're trying to grow that out aggressively in 2017. So we're excited. I'm most active probably on LinkedIn. So someone can, I pretty much accept everybody on LinkedIn and you can message me through there. Or my personal website I have is bill-lions.com. Or of course, you can go to revestor.com and, and check out that platform there. And like I said, yeah, we'll put all that information in the show notes. Thank you again for coming on and sharing your story, Bill. Thank you for your time, Austin. Appreciate it. All right. Have a good one. Hola. Thank you for tuning in into this episode with Bill Lyons. If you enjoyed it and want to show us a little support, then don't be scared to leave us a five-star review. It helps other potential listeners enjoy this fabulous show just like you did over the last 45 minutes. As always, thanks for tuning in. And if you're looking for more episodes dealing with the real estate industry, Try episode 14 with John Reed or episode 15 with Jillian Hellman and upcoming episode 27 with Kevin Smith. Thank you for listening to this episode. It's been made available for free by our podcast sponsors and our Patreon members. So thank you to you both, especially our newest and oldest Patreon members for paying for this episode. Without you guys and gals, we wouldn't be here. So would you be willing to pay for someone else to listen for free? If you are willing to help support us, and get some awesome Patreon perks along the way, then go to austinsbigp.com to become a Patreon member today. That's austinsbigp.com. Oh, and by the way, Austin's Big P, that stands for Austin's Big Podcast. So again, if you're willing to pay it forward and allow someone else to listen to this episode for free, then go to austinsbigp.com.